Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter eight this morning. Some of you might think I'm a weirdo, but oftentimes when I read a book, I'm one of those guys that likes to read the last chapter first. Uh, sometimes I heard a groan from some of you guys. That's pretty funny. Um, uh, sometimes I'll read the last sentence just to see what the last sentence is. And um, you know, as it turns out, I guess I'm not alone. How many of you guys actually do that same thing? Anybody else here that's a weirdo? Yep, you and me. We're the anointed ones, as it turns out. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Did you know that um, uh, the University of California at San Diego did a big study on this and they found, um, it turns out people who quote, spoil, uh, stories for themselves by reading the last chapter actually have a more enjoyable experience reading the story itself. Um, they've found that in their studies. And uh, I, I concur, I have to say. Now, it might be the way some of us are wired. You see, I kind of like to see, one of the things I'm more interested in is when, when, when there's a point A to point B, I like to see how did we get from here to there? And so I think that's why I have that thing in me. I wanna know what the there is first before we watch the, 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 the journey there. And uh, call me weird or whatever. Well, let's do that this morning. If you guys are willing to indulge me, let's read the last sentence of our story first. And then we'll, uh, we'll you'll kind of see what I mean, maybe, hopefully. Uh, it's Matthew chapter eight, uh, verse 34. Let's take a look. Matthew eight thirty-four. There it says, and behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. What? What could drive a people to say, Jesus, get out? It reminds me like of an old West movie. Remember the guy would be coming into town and the, the sheriff would come out and say, we don't want your kind in these parts. Get out of here. Uh, and you'd have to get out of Dodge, you know? That was the way it was. Well, that's what these people did. Who are these people? And why would these crazy people say, yeah, we don't want Jesus? Because so far, Jesus has shown himself to be an amazingly huge blessing to every place he's been so far. Why would these people want Jesus out? Well, if you wanna know, just ask Portland or Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York or Washington DC because we've been saying get out to Jesus in our nation, in our cities for a long time. It was back when we said get out of our schools, no prayer in school and you surely can't say Jesus and you surely can't say Merry Christmas uh, remember when we got into that? I'm glad that that seems to be letting up because uh, I've noticed the last couple of Christmases is not, not as much of a, of a thing, but you'd go into a store and you'd say, Merry Christmas. And you could always tell that person, happy holidays. <laughs> and they'd say sanctimoniously. And I'd, and I'd say, happy holy day to you too. <laughs> they thought they were doing something, you know, getting religion out by saying happy holidays. And I was like, well, holy day is a holiday. I mean, that's why it's called a holiday. It was holy day. And so happy holy day to you. And then, well, 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 happy winter solstice. <laughs> and it got weird. We started calling them in Eugene, the city tree was called a winter solstice tree. Uh, and I thought, what a weirdo, you know, the city is saying, get Jesus out. We don't want to talk about Jesus. What, especially around Christmas, like what part of peace on earth, goodwill toward men do people not like? Why would they want to get that out? And it's because, well, people are hardened but it doesn't happen overnight. I think that the, the whole excluding of Jesus, whether you're Portland or the United States or the world or Gadara or Gergasa, what are those places? Well, that's the region we're talking about here in the Bible. Um, interesting place. 
And these guys are just like us in so many ways as a nation that says, yeah, we don't want Jesus part of this, you know, separation of church and state. Keep Jesus out of our government, keep Jesus out of our schools. And how's that working out for us? If you look back in our history, when we included Jesus more, things were better. Uh, the more you exclude Jesus, you know, it's an amazing thing that they didn't want Christ because so far we followed, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, six, and seven, beautiful sermon, heavy, I might add, but it was a good sermon, of course. But then after the sermon, what has Jesus done? He went down from the Mount of Olives and last Sunday we saw the leper who was diseased and a death sentence. And he came up to Jesus and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, you are clean. He cleansed the leper. No doubt the word, we know from other passages in the New Testament that the word was starting to spread that Jesus was healing lepers. Nobody had seen a leopard cleansed for hundreds of years. After that, a Roman centurion uh, came up and said, Jesus, my servant at home is sick. And she said, I'll go to your house. And he said, you don't even need to go to my house. He said, I'm a, a person in authority. And when I tell people what to do, uh, you know, they do what I say. And I'm also a person under authority. And when they tell me what to do, I do what they say. So you having authority, you don't even need to go to my house. Just, just speak it out and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, oh, I've not seen so great a faith in all of Israel as this guy. And he says, your servant is clean and healed. And he went home and at that very same moment, Jesus said that his servant was healed of the palsy. And then after that, Jesus makes his way finally into the little town of Capernaum. And there at Capernaum, he goes into Peter's house where his mother-in-law, and for you Catholics, kind of interesting. Isn't it interesting that Peter, the first Pope, had a mother-in-law? Some of you are like, what's the big deal? He had a wife, hello. <laughs> the first Pope was married. They should have kept it that way. I'm just saying, uh, marriage is a good thing. Um, but all that to say, the Peter, I'm joking a little bit about that. You guys, don't be taking it so seriously. You're all, I can't believe you said that. Um, <laughs> I just did and I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Peter was married and his mother-in-law was healed by Jesus. Jesus touches his hand and says, you know, be healed. And, and man, this woman stands up and she's, she starts serving and ministering to everybody in the house. Like it's an amazing story. Everywhere Jesus goes is healing and blessing. And, and, and by the way, uh, you gotta get the old, you know, Jesus movies like from the 70s out of your head. You know, I always bring this up because I think there's a lot of you that you're pretty sure Jesus is mad at you and you have this image in your mind that Jesus, when he looks at you, like in those old 70s movies, you know, he's skinny and, and he's, he's a little bit serious, like way too serious. And he's got the sunken eyes and he looks like he needs a hamburger really bad. Um, and he's just kind of walking around and when, he, you know, when your name is called, he kind of looks at you. And you're like, ah, like Jesus is a scary, scary guy. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, we know that for so many reasons. You know, one of my favorite messianic Psalms, Psalm 45, verse seven, it tells us prophetically about the coming Messiah. Thou lovest righteousness, hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jesus was said to have been anointed with the oil of gladness above everybody else. Um, when Jesus walked around, there was joy in the air. We know that to be true. If, as an old children's pastor, I, I, I noticed that there's, there's, there's two kind of people in the world. There's the kind of people kids love to be with and be around, and there's other kinds of people kids are horrified of you. Um, the Jesus movie guy, kids would have never come to him. They would have run for their lives. But in, this, in the narrative of the Bible, Jesus sits down and kids come running up and jump on his lap and the disciples are, hey, get these kids out of here. They're those kind of people, you know. 
Uh, and kids are like, ah, oh, the disciples, but Jesus, see, we like him. And they're sitting on his lap and they love Jesus because Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. Um, uh, Luke chapter four, verse 22 says, all bear witness of Jesus and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. When Jesus spoke, they just sensed a graciousness about him. And the point that I'm making is Jesus in his ministry, in his walk, in his life on earth, man, he was the guy to be around. People loved, that's why the multitudes followed him wherever he went. But on this occasion, Jesus gets in a boat and goes across the Sea of Galilee. And, 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 and this is where we kind of pick up our story. This is interesting because Jesus, so far, he's loved even the outcasts. I mean, those three people that he healed already that I talked about, they were all outcasts. The leper, outcast. Jesus touched him and cleansed him. The Gentile Roman centurion, the Jews hated those guys. And Jesus cared about this guy and even marveled that there's no greater faith that he'd seen in all of Israel than this Gentile outcast. So you got the outcast leper, the outcast Gentile, Roman centurion, and then you have the outcast, well, I hate to say it, but in that culture, in that time, women were an outcast. Women were treated horribly in that culture. Jesus was the one who cared for women and loved women and gave them time and affection and attention and, and healed this woman, Peter's mother-in-law. A lot of the culture said, yeah, whatever. The Jews, the Pharisees used to pray, I thank you, Lord, that I am not a Gentile, I'm not a dog, or I'm not a woman. That's the way they prayed in those days. Did you know, by the way, um, even, uh, even in, in, in uh, Bible days and even to modern times, there's stories even in modern times of Jerusalem where um, there, there's kind of a thing where if a, a woman's going into labor, they, they, they don't do the bridal shower like um, you know, months before the baby comes. They, when, when she goes into labor, everybody comes over to the house. Uh, and they all bring their presents and they're all ready and, and the baby's coming and everybody's excited. And then when the baby comes, if they declare, it's a boy, and they start partying down, big party. And they, they have the exchanging of all the gifts and they just, three days of celebration. In Bible times, they did that. But if they came out and said, it's a girl, they'd all pack up their gifts and go home. Serious, that's a true story. Like that's the way the culture looked at it back in those days. Jesus, and by the way, I would challenge anybody that tries to make Christianity like anti-woman, uh, they just haven't read their Bible and they don't know Jesus. Um, but, but how is it then this nice guy who is the lover of the outcasts and, the, and kind and gracious and anointed with gladness and he comes into this place, how is it that these people got to this place of really rejection? One word, compromise. These people, for, for, for I'm gonna say hundreds of years, had become a people of great compromise. And so much compromise over years, little here, little there, but compromise, they get to a place where they don't even recognize God in the flesh standing right before them. And they want him out of their town. He's disrupting their lives. He's challenging their worldview. So get out, we don't want this guy. How does a people group get to this? Compromise is the problem. By the way, there's a Russian proverb parable that I like uh, that it's about compromise. This Russian is uh, this man, he's a hunter and he says, I need a new fur coat. So he goes out into the woods and he's, he finds a big bear and he takes his rifle and gets a bead on the bear. And just before he pulls the trigger, the bear says, hey, wait, stop. And the Russian's like, wow, a talking bear. And the bear says, come on, don't shoot me. You see the bear, he had a problem too. He was hungry. The Russian wanted a coat, the bear wanted food, and the, and the bear said, hey, don't, let's be gentlemen. Let, come into my den and let's talk about this. 
And so the rest is like, okay. And they go into the, the, the Russian parable goes, he goes into the den and starts talking and the, they come up with an agreement and they both get what they want. The, the bear got his meal and the Russian got his coat. Those of you guys, that, that's what compromise does. The Russian got eaten, he, he's wearing, anyway. Um, <laughs> But, but all that to say, uh, you know, what's, what's interesting about that is compromise does end up taking you down the wrong road. Oh, there's such a thing as wise compromise, I get that. But in this context, compromising what you know to be true and right for the sake of getting immediate satisfaction or whatever, well, that's gonna lead you down the wrong path. And that's where we bring in the rest of the story here in Matthew chapter eight. Let's back it up a little bit and go to verse 28. Matthew eight twenty-eight. It says, when he was come to the other side, that's the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out saying, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, a herd of many swine or pigs feeding. So the devils besought Jesus saying, if thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of the swine and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything what had befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. These people are freaked out by what Jesus just did casting out these devils from these two guys. Now there's some things here that we need to sort of back up and I wanna just share with you because there's confusion about this. Um, and understandably, um, there's, there's two accounts in the Bible that are very similar, but not exactly the same. In Mark chapter five, there's the same story or, or at least a similar story. And see, here's where a lot of people get really, um, you know, stumbled and they should, it's not that big a deal. They'll say, there's a contradiction in the Bible. You know, Matthew says there's two guys. Mark says there's one guy. Um, Matthew says it's in, uh, you know, the place of the Gergesenes. And Mark says it's in the place of Gadara. Which one is it? Um, and the answers are pretty simple. It's either one of two things. Either one, there's two stories that are very similar. And maybe it happened twice. It's not that far-fetched to think of that. Jesus can do whatever he wants, by the way. There could be two herds of swine and two stories about demon-possessed people and two regions of, of an area that's full of demon-possessed people. That's not a big deal. Most scholars, however, believe it's the same story because Gergasa and Gadara are kind of the same region, same location, same people group. And not only that, they're both uh, in the tombs there. And maybe, you know, in, in one case, you know, perhaps we can just speculate that maybe one of the two guys was more violent and more demon possessed seeming than the other. Maybe the other guy was there. And, and when Mark records it, he says, man, there was a guy that was raging, demon possessed, and Jesus delivered him. Where Matthew says there was two guys, 
It's not that, the, that one of them's wrong, it's just a perspective. Each gospel gives us a different perspective of the story of the gospel. So don't let this kind of stuff derail you. It's not a big deal. People get all up in a tizzy about this. But um, this, this whole story is kind of an interesting story. We learn a couple more things about this, by the way. We learn about demons and devils. Uh, what do we know? Well, first of all, some of you probably, when you think of devils or demons, you think of orcs on Lord of the Rings running through the woods. Demons, you know, unintelligent beings that are evil. Um, but the first thing we note in this story is these are intelligent beings. They're in fact more intelligent than pretty much anybody in the story so far because these guys acknowledge and understand. What do they say? Jesus, thou son of God. They already know who Jesus is before everybody else does. That's kind of interesting. And don't forget, did you know the devil believes in Jesus? The demons believe in Jesus? There's a difference between believing in Jesus and believing in Jesus. What's the difference? <laughs> well, if you believe that Jesus exists, well, so does the devil and so do the demons. But if you believe Jesus, everything he said, did, and lived for and was about, that's to really believe in Jesus the way John three sixteen talks about it. Whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe that he was the son of God who died on the cross for your sins, if you believe what he said and what he did, then you're saved. That's where the devil doesn't do that. So the devil believes in Jesus, but there's something else we learn here that I find intriguing. These demons, they know that they're doomed. Did you see that? They try to reason and say, what are you doing here, Jesus, thou son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? In other words, they know there's a time a coming where they're doomed. That's interesting to me. And if these demons know that, know that, don't you know that the devil himself knows that he's doomed? Have you ever wondered why the devil does what he does? Why does he mess with humanity? Why does he try to put evil in the world? And what's going on there? I don't know the answer to that fully. I have a theory though. Have you ever had your friends, you're having a nice summer afternoon and you're around a swimming pool and, and a bunch of your friends come up and they start messing with you and that your buddies are gonna throw you in the pool. You know you're going in. It's like 10 against one. You're doomed, you're going in. But if you're like me, you're gonna say, I may be going in this pool, but I'm gonna take as many of you with me as I can. And so you start grabbing ears and you know, shirts and sandals or whatever you can get a hold of and you're gonna take as many in with you. I believe that's, that's poolside theology. That's what's going on, I think, with the devil. Um, Brad, are you comparing yourself to the devil? Pretty much. Uh, no, no. Uh, yeah, the devil's trying to take people down. I think he, he knows he's, he's going down, and I believe somehow the devil and the demons, they know they're going down, but they're gonna take as many uh, of you and many people on this planet as they can with them. Uh, that's the theory that, that I have out there. Um, but we don't know for sure, but we do know from the Bible, these guys know there's, there are times coming where they're gonna be judged. We learned that. Also, we learned that these devils, these demons filling this guy, um, these guys, uh, they don't like to be, and I, I hate to use sort of uh, Hollywood language or you know, uh, coast to coast with George Norrie or whatever uh, language, but because uh, it's a little wacko, but, but these demons don't like to be disembodied they're like, okay, Jesus, we know we're going out of these guys, but please don't send us into nowhere. At least send us into these pigs. Now, what good did that do? I have no idea. Other than they went into the pigs, the pigs freaked out and ran down the cliff and ran into the Sea of Galilee and died. So where'd they go after that? I don't have the foggiest idea. But it is kind of a weird story where we start to learn these demons didn't wanna be in sort of that disembodied state. Interesting. 
And so these, these, these people, you know, they come out and they see this guy, who, these, these two guys that were demon possessed, now they're sitting there in their right mind. They see their pigs floating in the Sea of Galilee dead. And they look at Jesus and say, get out. And Jesus left. What an amazing story. You know, I was in this place, this region, um, a few years back and I, um, I, 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 it was great because this is one of those spots, uh, it, there's a, a, a 1500 year old monastery, it was a Byzantine monastery that was built right at this place. Modern day, they call it Kursi, but it was uh, the ancient region of Gadara and Gurgasa, the same area where this happened. And they believe this is the very spot where the story happened because of the cliffs and the way they would face toward the, uh, <clears throat> the Sea of Galilee. So I, I wanna show you a little video that we shot uh, just so you can kind of get a vibe of the feel of what happened here. We are here at an ancient Byzantine monastery. It's uh, um, one that dates back to about five, uh, the fifth century AD, uh, very old, about 1500 years old. Um, and there's beautiful mosaics. They found this in the 70s actually and, uh, and did some excavation and uh, unearthed it. But um, one of the reasons this is kind of a key spot for us is uh, it's just a cool old monastery. But but more than that, they believe this to be one of the likely places where Jesus uh, crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And when he came to this beach, the sea is just right this direction, right here, we're at the shore. Behind me though, you'll see the big cliff and the hillside there. They believe that this, this hillside, this cliff is the very one where the pigs ran down right into the Sea of Galilee and were drowned in the sea. And so it would have been right here that the people would come and they say, let's see this thing that happened. Um, interesting, you know, a good Jewish person doesn't raise swine. Uh, they're already way off course as the people of, of God back in those days. Uh, but by this time, the sad part of this story is here's Jesus coming across the sea and he's got compassion on this guy who's uh, scratching himself, bloodying himself, demon possessed. And, and it's here that he, he delivers him. But the sad part of the story is when the people saw the guy sitting in his right mind and Jesus who had delivered him, um, it doesn't say they were amazed at Jesus' compassion or his ability to heal or deliver from demons. It says they were very afraid and they asked him to leave. What a sad indictment on the people of Gadara um, where they cared more about their pigs than they cared about people. Uh, that's the sad truth of this, this place. Cool, these mosaics that are here in this, uh, they show pictures of that very Bible story. So these uh, Byzantine sort of monks believe this was the place and it's very likely geographically to be the place. But it, being there is kind of fun because no tourists really go there. It's, it's not a great big tourist spot, but it is a place that hap where the Bible happened and it's kind of fun to see that. But it, it, made, it makes you wonder what, what would bring these people to that place where they would actually say, yeah, Jesus, get out of here. Um, well, the, I mentioned already compromise. And how did these people become compromised? Well, it started hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And uh, let's go into that. I wanna give you three levels of compromise that we see in the story. First of all, the first compromise was location. Um, how did these people end up there and who were they? Well, these Gad Gadarenes or the Gadites um, or the Girgashites, they're the same people group that go way back to the times of Moses. 
And, um, and this location is kind of interesting. What happened? How did they come to live in this region? Well, as it turns out, if you remember the story of the children of Israel, the 12 tribes, they were supposed to go into the promised land, but they totally freaked out and, and said, we're gonna die by those giants, the sons of Anak. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And they freaked out and said, we can't go this. And, and Joshua and Caleb said, oh man, we can go, they're food for us. We can go in and take these people. And, and um, Joshua and Caleb were wholly following the Lord, but everybody else were wholly not following the Lord. And so the Lord said, you guys aren't going in then. And for 40 years, the children of Israel wandered. Now you gotta fast forward those 40 years. In fact, why don't you keep your finger here in Matthew eight and flip over to Numbers 32. I wanna show you uh, where this story actually comes from. Numbers chapter 32. It's a, it's a great part of the, the narrative where the children of Israel finally, after 40 years of wandering, Moses is prepping everybody to go in. He himself's not gonna go in, as you know, if you know your story. But in Numbers 32, they're prepping to go into the land of promise. And suddenly something happens that makes, it kind of ticks Moses off. And it starts here in Numbers 32. Um, it says in verse one of 32, now the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and other passages, we know there's also a half tribe of Manasseh. Uh, so Reuben, Gad, half tribe of Manasseh. Uh, a very great multitude, they had a multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Yazer, the land of Gilead, that behold, that place was a place for cattle. What are these people doing? Like, man, this is nice, we like it here. Um, and we wanna stay here. Um, and so they came to Moses and look at verse five. Wherefore, they said, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession and bring us not over the Jordan. Now this is a problem because the children of Israel are supposed to go over the Jordan River and go into the promised land, that's the plan. And Moses kinda, he's ticked, check it out, verse six. Moses said unto the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, shall your brethren go to war and you sit here? And wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Um, this is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, for they went up to the valley of Ashkol and saw the land and discouraged the heart of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled at the same time and he swore saying, surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward um, would be able to go into the land. And, and Moses is saying, you guys are doing the same exact thing those guys did 40 years ago. We're about to go through the same thing we went through. Are you kidding me? That's kind of what Moses is saying. Um, so the story goes on. And so the, the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they say this, and, and let's fast forward to um, verse 16. Uh, they, they, they came near to Moses and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our cattle and cities and our little ones, but we ourselves will go ready armed before the children of Israel until we have brought them unto their place and our little ones shall dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return into our houses until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. In other words, they made a deal with Mo. And they said, Mo, we'll go to battle. Our men of war will cross into the Jordan. We'll fight for y'all, with you guys. We'll stand with you. We don't wanna discourage you, but we wanna live over here on the east side of the Jordan River, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And Moses reluctantly agrees. Now you have to understand why this, Moses is upset about this. 
Why wouldn't you wanna go into the land that God said, this is your land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why wouldn't you wanna cross over the Jordan? And they said, we just don't care, we like this. It's a good place to raise cattle. By the way, I see people make this mistake. They make choices about where they live or make big life decisions based on occupation, but they don't, is this a good place to raise children? Is this a good place to raise a family? Is this a good place to be in line with God's will for your life? I notice people sometimes don't pray about this stuff. Well, these people, I would say, are a picture of that. They're like, well, we kind of like this area. You can raise cattle here, so we're gonna stay here. Yeah, but you're not going into the promised land. Whatever, we're gonna stay here. So they, this is the first big compromise we see of these people. And that's why we call this area Gadara because it comes from the, the place of the name Gadarene, which is from the Gadites of the tribe. So, so through the, the, the centuries, this place of, uh, of Gadara, or as in Matthew's gospel, uh, Gerasa, for where the Gergesenes were, um, this is where these people settled, just on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, outside of God's perfect will for their lives. You say, well, Brett, it seemed to work out for them. They lived there and it was all great, right? Wrong. You see, when you aren't shooting for the best, shooting for what God wants for you, um, you, you make these compromises and the, the repercussions of that may not show themselves right away. Making a bad decision, compromising what you know you're supposed to do, but saying, eh, I'm just gonna settle for this. You may not see the problem right away, nor did they. The Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh did fine right up until 740 BC. What happened then? Well, at that time, the Assyrians came along and the Assyrians were at that time, one of the scariest people groups throughout all of history. Um, people don't realize their history. You know, everybody talks about the Greeks and Alexander the Great, or even talk about uh, Genghis Khan of the, uh, you know, I mean, that, like they were some scary people. But if you look at your history, some, some scholars, historians would say, nope, the Assyrians take the cake. They would go into a city and uh, crush everyone, uh, but they'd get the leaders of the city, all the governors and leaders and the, the main men in the city, and they'd skin them alive in front of all the people and then take their skins and fly, fly them like flags all around the city, reminding the people, don't mess with the Assyrians. I could go on and on. They would take all the skulls of the people they killed and pile up in a big pyramid outside the city gate saying, this is what happens to you. Uh, kind of say, this is not a way to get ahead. Uh, that's what they would say. Sorry, I know that's horrible, but I'm trying to lighten. You guys look very serious. Um, I had to lighten the mood here. Um, so in, in 740, uh, one of the Assyrians that was most scary was a guy named Tiglath-Pilaser III. Who was Tiglath-Pilaser III? This is a stone relief they actually carved commemorating him. They, the Assyrians carved this and they found this near Nineveh in what is modern day Iraq by Mosul. Uh, for those of you who've been to Iraq. Um, and, um, and this is a, a, a picture of him in his chariot with his posse and a little parasol to keep the sun off his head. Uh, that's, that's the way this guy rolled, but you didn't wanna get in this guy's path because he would crush you. So when it came time for Tiglath in 740 BC, he'd conquered so many of the nations around. It was time for them to conquer Israel. And they started setting a site on the 10 Northern tribes. But if you can imagine, guess who the very first group of people to be taken by this guy? It would be these people who were living on the fringe, on the edge. They weren't in Israel. They were kind of off by themselves, doing their own thing. And they were the first ones to be dragged off into captivity. And if you recall, uh, the narrative is clear. The Assyrians took big old hooks 
and put them in the nose of these people and chained them together and dragged the living ones off to slavery up in Assyria. And you know, it's interesting, you know, um, the, the, the capital of this guy actually became eventually uh, uh, a place called uh, Nineveh, which was a composite uh, complex of four cities. It's kind of an interesting story, but the Reubenites, the Gad- Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were captives as slaves, and they had to serve Assyria, whether they were in Assyria or they stayed here near Gadara or this place we're talking about. The reason I, I bring this story out is because this is what happened to the people that compromised and said, we're gonna hang back. We don't wanna be part of the congregation of Israel. We wanna sort of do it our own way, go our own way and forget God's plan. We're gonna kind of do it our way. Compromise number one, location. And when you are hanging back from what God wants you, do you understand you're vulnerable? These people were vulnerable to the attack of Tiglath. I think that's a picture of what happens to you and me. When I was a kid, there used to be a thing and they don't do it anymore. I haven't seen this for years. Uh, Maybe because people were, it was really brutal. Um, I was in track and field and I used to, uh, you know, do shot discus and javelin and uh, those were my events, but I always used to laugh at the runners because we'd be out there with our stereo in our car and we'd be, you know, putting the shot once in a while and then we see all these people running, 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 running. I was like, ha, ha, I chose wisely. But th- th- has anybody ever heard, after the track meet, we used to see this thing called the devil takes the hindmost. Anybody hear about this race? Uh, I think I know why they stopped doing it. It was brutal. Uh, at the end of the track meet, they'd get the 10 you know, fastest runners, more of a long distance kind of runner, and they'd line them up. In fact, I brought a picture from the 70s of this, and this is a real picture of, the, of this event. Uh, and here's what would happen. Uh, the 10 guys would line up at the starting line of the track, and then the gun would go off, and they'd take off, 10 of them. The problem is, is on your first lap of, I think, nine, you would go around the lap, and then if you were the last one, then the devil would tap you with his pitchfork, and you were out. You say, whatever, that's stupid. Well, if you're a runner, you know that changes the pace of this race incredibly. You don't wanna be the last guy, so that first lap is a very fast lap, and they're running fast, and the last guy gets tapped by the devil's pitchfork. And then the next lap, the second guy last, you know, and you had to be the fastest one on every lap, which totally made this, this grueling, overly fast-paced race. Uh, and I remember hearing stories of literally people crawling across the finish line by the ninth lap because everybody was just killing themselves trying to get there. Maybe that's why they stopped doing it. But what an appropriate name, Devil Takes the Hindmost. Uh, and it was a funny, sort of fun race that they used to do. But, uh, but I remember hearing of this when I was younger, thinking that's kind of what the devil really does. He picks people off that are sort of at the tail end or on the outside or off to themselves, the last one. If you hang back, you're, you're in a vulnerable position. That was the place of the people of Gadara and Gergasa. They were people that were hanging back. Years earlier, they made a compromised decision to sort of be off to themselves, away from the congregation of Israel. And you know, the thing is about this, um, I, I think we have to be careful not to put ourselves in that position. There's, you know, we talk about this all the time, uh, but to have people in your life where you're accountable to them and you've got good counsel. Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counselor, but their location, they located themselves outside of where God really wanted them. Man, I hope you're not doing that. I hope you're you know, making sure to, to uh, be in good standing where God wants you to be, location. Uh, that's, that's the first compromise. The second compromise that was made um, was vocation. Vocation? Yeah, interestingly enough, as it turns out, um, these people were pig farmers. 
What good Jewish people become pig farmers? If you know your Bible, the Jews were not supposed to have anything to do with pigs. Uh, that's not kosher. It's one of my biggest complaints every time we go to Israel. You can't find a strip of bacon for your life. In all the promised land, it may be a land flowing with milk and honey, but it sure doesn't have bacon, which to me is the one that matters. Um, <laughs> by the way, uh, when you go to McDonald's in Jerusalem, I call it the American Embassy. Um, there's, a, there's a burger they have there called the Big American. And it's kind of funny because the McDonald's in, in the United States does not have a burger this good, not even close. It's like one pound of hamburger and it's like grass-fed beef. Like it's really delicious hamburger and it's huge, and, you know, but you cannot get cheese on it. There's no cheeseburgers in Israel because the law of the Jews says you're not supposed to mix the milk with the meat, uh, you know, and there's reasons for that. So you can't have cheese on your burger. And that's why if you get pizza, you never get meat on a pizza. It's, it's like, there's a few unfortunate things in Israel. Um, I'm sort of joking. But, uh, but the truth is pigs were definitely a no-no. You don't have pigs. And these are so-called Jews and their vocation, well, they're pig farmers. So what, 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 what did they, when did they say, let's just raise some pigs? Uh, where did they get the, the idea of saying, we don't have to be good Jews anymore? It was just another compromise. Somewhere along the way, they made a rationality in their mind, ah, we can raise pigs, whatever. For, forget the law of Moses. Um, by the way, in Israel, you see that today. And, and I told you you can't find bacon. I actually found bacon, not bacon, but before it was processed. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's a place you can drive and it's, it's actually in the Valley of Armageddon. It's kind of funny, it's location. Uh, but you drive by this big field, this farm, and you see thousands of pigs out there. And you're like, what? How are there pigs? But if you look closely, the pigs are standing on a two foot platform. What the Jews did there is they built this deck. It's just like your deck in your backyard, but it's two feet off the ground and it's like maybe 10 acres of a deck. And the pigs are all standing on the deck, fenced in. And I asked my buddy Steve, who's you know, a, a great guy over there in Israel. He, I said, what's the deal with that? Oh, those guys, they're, they're Jews that figured out a loophole how to raise pigs without being, uh, uh, you know, breaking the law of Moses. And I said, how's that? Well, the, the scriptures say, and you know, Steve been an expert on the Hebrew Bible, he said, you know, the, the, the law says you can't raise pigs in the land of Israel. So they took the pigs off the land and they're raising them on a deck. So they're not technically touching the land. Uh, <laughs> they're getting away with it. Uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, now eating the bacon part, I'm not sure. I think they sell that to the Arabs uh, uh, who will eat bacon. But anyway, that's, a, or some of them will eat bacon. But anyway, that, I get off the course when I get on food. Anyway, <laughs> how did they become pig farmers? The answer is they became unkosher. They, they started separating from what God actually wanted them to be as Jewish people. They, they were assimilated in this Syrian culture over the years because they were picked off by the Assyrians. And then by the time Jesus came on the scene, you could barely recognize them as God's chosen people. So much were they different than when God, Emmanuel, stood right in front of them. They said, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Well, I hope that you're plugged in. I hope that you're uh, sticking with God's word. I hope you're, you're still with God's people and not isolated and not making decisions that put yourself further and further compromising your faith and your walk. It's interesting how um, you know, people get further, for, further away of isolation and then they don't really realize when they're off course. Have you made decisions in your life that are compromised decisions that, man, you, you know, one time you thought it was no big deal, but now you're kind of like, oh man, I. 
I don't know, I remember, you know, I, I feel that, you know, just as I get older and older, you start to allow things, things that you would have never imagined. You know, when I was raised in my house as a kid, two shows on TV were allowed, Little House on the Prairie and The Waltons. It's funny, I watched The Waltons the other day and they were, um, they were uh, doing like one of those old shows. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, it, it was kind of funny because uh, I remember thinking, oh, The Waltons is wholesome, but it's actually not. If you watch The Waltons, there's all kinds of stuff in there. And there's like this whole thing about atheism and they kind of push this, you know, the dad was sort of an atheist and they sort of make him look like the hero and everybody who was a Christian was kind of wacko in The Waltons. But I'll never forget the day when my mom opened the floodgates to a third show in our home. No longer was it just Little House of the Prairie and The Waltons, we got to watch Gilligan's Island. <laughs> that cerebral show. Um, which was a shocker, and I'll tell you, I was surprised that my mom let us watch this one word, ginger. <laughs> but, um, but all that to say, you know, um, but it's funny now because have you thought about the shows we watch today compared to what you watched when you were a kid or when your parents would limit what you could watch? That was back in the day for you younger people. There used to be a day when parents used to tell kids what they could and couldn't watch. Uh, there was a rating system that actually meant something uh, back in the day. But, uh, but what about you? Are you one that is allowed to sort of compromise, not just in what you watch, but what you watch and then what you do because you watched it? You know, it's, it's funny, I see Christians, you know, we, we can sort of start compromising and even making excuses and why we were okay with our compromise. I mean, I know that you might think I'm a self-righteous prude, uh, but I've noticed People, Christians are cussing more. Have you noticed that? Cussing's becoming more of a, a hip thing. Well, I'm, I'm just like Paul the Apostle. Paul said cuss words, so I'm gonna say cuss words. And, and by the way, that's just kind of a bad argument if you know your Bible really well. Paul did use heavy pointed language and freaked people out with it. But it wasn't with, with the heart or the purpose intent of saying profanity or cuss words or just being vile. He, he was purposely not doing that. And Paul was one said, by the way, whatever you do, don't let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So this whole thing where I've noticed people are like, ah, oh, it's cool to cuss, that's just who I am. You know, I'm this, I'm that. No, you're just a miserable sinner and cussing's sinful. I'm just gonna tell you that. Well, who are you to say, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. That's what you pay me for. Um, but, but see, there's people who say, well, that's no big deal. That's just a compromise you're allowing in your life and making excuses of why it's okay, and you even might even think it's cool, but what does God think about it? What, what does God think about what you're doing? And, and could you be getting off course just a degree with your cussing? Because you know what? If I hear you cuss, and even pastors are cussing now in the pulpit, I've noticed that, that's a trend. Um, but to me, that's just getting off by a degree, and the problem is 10 years down the road, that one degree becomes a massive distance. We wonder why we find ourselves off course why we feel separate from the Lord and why, why we're distant from what God really wants for us. Ask the people of Gadara. They're so off course, they don't even recognize the Messiah anymore. It's kind of a sad deal. Compromise number three. Compromise number one, location. They compromise their location. Compromise number two, their vocation. What they did, their very living of what they did was compromised. Number three, possession. <laughs> Um, oops, I forgot one. Mark 5, 9, uh, Jesus, uh, this is something about the pigs that we need to know. How many pigs were there? Did they have a lot of pigs? Well, we know from Mark's account of this story, Jesus asked this devil and said, what is thy name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion for we are many. Well, that sounds like a bad movie right there. 
there's many demons. How many? Well, the word legion would imply at least thousands. So how many pigs were there? Maybe thousands and thousands of pigs. These guys, their vocation was that they were in fact pig farmers. So that's number two, vocation. That was what they did. But number three is possession, possession. Uh, You mean like what they owned? Nope, they were possessed with devils. How did this community, uh, why were demons and what were they doing in this region to begin with? One of the things you realize when you read your Bible is demons are often geographically located. there's, There's a thing about Satan and demons that is linked to geography. And I don't, I don't know exactly what the link is, but except for this. Like remember when uh, Daniel was fasting and praying and the, 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 you know, the, the angel that was gonna come and give a word to Daniel was held up by the prince of Persia, which was a name of this demonic entity that was holding back the angel. And Daniel fasted and prayed for you know, 21 days. And then this, because of the fasting and praying, this battle uh, of this prince of Persia, this region, kept the angel from coming. What's going on there? I don't know. Other than I know that it seems like there's geographical locations. And here's the thing that's interesting. Those of you that have done a lot of traveling around the world, you'll know and you'll note that there are places that are darker than others on the earth. Places where demonic stuff happens more than others. Um, Man, I've been to 27 different countries and you know, there's countries that have rejected Jesus and never accepted Christianity. And I'm telling you, There's a darkness there that's not in some of the other countries. Wherever the gospel of Jesus has been accepted, you do sense there's a light there. And we could talk about all kinds of reasons and examples of that. But you know, why is it when you go to parts of Africa, there's just demonic stuff going on? I've seen stuff that I, I mean, I could tell you stories. You probably think I was nuts, but um, there's there's real darkness in real places. What what makes this place, uh, you know, of Gadara or Gergasa, the Gergesenes, Why were there demons here? What happened there? You see, when demons are flourishing, it's usually because there was some kind of door opened in a region or a person's life or even a certain group of people. And it's an interesting thing. In America, we don't see demon stuff as much. I'll tell you why. Because I think we were founded originally on godly principles with people who love the Lord and and we, we didn't open the door for demons. We were trying to shut that door and we were bringing Jesus in. Um, wherever you see Jesus rejected, you see more demonic stuff and what have you. So in America, we don't see that as much. We, we actually sanitize demon stuff too. I think sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we diagnose someone who's possessed with maybe schizophrenia or insanity or, or something like that. But, but maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but sometimes I think it's spiritual stuff. Um, so all this to say, you know, uh, what, what happened with these people? Somewhere along the way, they opened the door to demonic influence and what have you. Man, when I was in Vanuatu in the South Pacific, I was in a, a town where uh, th- th- it was a godless pagan village. They were all naked, spears, bones in their nose. It was like National Geographic moment. And they took me into their Nakamal, which is their little community center of bamboo. It was just a bamboo sort of big hut. And this guy was literally crunched down in chains, uh, chained to the stick that was, a uh, post that was driven into the ground. And I said, what's up with this guy? And he's looking up at me and it was just kind of dark and weird. And they explained to me through interpreters saying, this guy runs around lighting people's houses on fire. And we, there's nothing we can do. They didn't have jails. They didn't have padded cells. They didn't have some Ritalin for him. They just said, we got to chain him to the stake. Um, what is it that makes someone do something? Like last week, the woman that came outside of her house and was beheaded 
by a crazy man on the street. That happened this last week in America. What is it that makes a person run through the city punching an 89 year old woman in the face, cold, you know, just a, without her even knowing it's coming? What makes a person do that? Um, well, Brett, I think it's drugs. Drugs have done this, maybe. You know, it's interesting to me. Um, we have to be careful about this. A lot of times I see Christians get all heebie-jeebie about demons. Oh, there's a demon of backache. I have the demon of backache. No, you just have a backache. Stop being weird. <laughs> and if you're a Christian, by the way, uh, we as Christians don't have to be fearful of this. I, I gotta always remind you, 1 John 4, 4, uh, you are of God, little children, you have, uh, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, we Christians have Christ in us. So you don't have to worry about demon possession if you're a Christian. I think you should worry about demon obsession. I think some Christians are more obsessed with demons. Um, and you see that sometimes, but, but the, the idea of demons, it's a very real thing, but we shouldn't be freaked out by it. Remember the devil is gonna be subdued someday. There's a time coming. That's what we learned in our text. The, the demon said, man, there's a time coming. And why are you messing with us? It's not yet time. So they know that there's time coming. What's gonna happen at that time? Well, Revelation 12, seven through nine tells us what's gonna happen. It says there pro prophetically, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Uh, so we know Michael can thump Satan, if you're wondering who wins that battle. It's, it's important for you to know that it's not God versus Satan. Boy, I hope God wins. It's not even Jesus versus Satan. Um, that's like the Los Angeles Rams playing the Athey Creek Cougars in football. Uh, don't mess that up, that's just ridiculous. Actually, uh, what it is is uh, Michael the Archangel is Satan's opposite. And as it turns out, Michael's gonna thump. Michael's kind of the SEAL Team Six angel in the Bible. Um, Satan, what was he in heaven? Anybody? He was a musician. I'll put the SEAL team guy against the musician every time. Uh, just saying, sorry, this is my fourth service. I get a little weird. But um, all that to say, Satan's going down, so we don't have to freak out. But the thing about this that I do wonder about, what, what is the door that people open to let Satan into their country or into their people group? For us, I wonder if there's something that we miss in the Bible. Um, when you come across the word sorcery in the Bible, did you know it's the, it's the Greek word pharmakia? This is something you should know, where we get our word pharmacy. And if you look up the word pharmakia in the Greek dictionary, it, there's four definitions, and I've listed them for you. The use or administrating of drugs, administering of drugs, poisoning, sorcery, magical arts, deceptions, and seductions of idolatry. The, the single word pharmakia includes sort of a spiritual wickedness along with drugs and, um, and, and how that inter interacts with the person. It almost seems like drugs are sort of a, um, a, a door or a gate that we open to evil. That's, that's something I've seen for years and years, by the way. It's been proven true just by experience. So here's Oregon, state of Oregon, and, and all the other states following us as we vote and we all make drugs all legal. Man, you can do meth, 
You can do fentanyl, you can do all this stuff. How are we doing? How does Oregon look uh, since we've uh, legalized all the, the drugs and stuff like that? Well, um, I didn't wanna show pictures of actual people because that's so heartbreaking and sad and I didn't wanna do that to people. But if you see the people that live in these tents and these cities all around our, our town that was once a pretty town, that's now a dump, uh, what's happened? Well, you know, we're handing out needles now to these people, making sure they get a, a clean syringe and making sure they're responsibly uh, doing drugs and all that. Um, and this is a fairly tame video. I could have gotten much worse. But when you go in downtown Portland, you see people defecating on the walls of, of the, the, Mac, uh, the Apple building in downtown Portland or smashing windows or, you know, all, where, where's all this coming from? I worry that sometimes, if we're not careful, could we be the people living in Westland and Lake Oswego and Wilsonville and, and uh, Tualatin and Beaverton and all these outlying cities where we've got the man of the tombs running around crazy just outside our town or inside our town, downtown Portland. Demons, devils that we've allowed and we voted in with our, our you know, pharmacia, if you would. And we just kind of watched our, our whole state going down the tubes. And, and a lot of us don't really own that when I think maybe we should. But even more importantly, the people of Gadara or the uh, you know, Gergesenes here in our text, these people could care less about the man of the tombs. That's the sad part of the story. The compromises of the Gadarenes, their location, their vocation, and then the demon possession that was around them, it's like they could care less. They got into a place where they could care less. It was all about their own pigs. That's all they cared about in the story. Hey, what happened to our pigs? Get out of here, Jesus. And sometimes I worry that we're dangerously teetering on that place where all we care about is our possessions, maybe our money, or as long as we're comfortable, who cares about the man of the tombs? Who cares about the demon possessed? So we've got this problem, you know, uh, that, that, that we see this story and I, I have to ask, boy, Lord, show us not to be people of compromise, first of all. We don't wanna just let things happen uh, you know, that, that you don't want to have happen. Lord, help us to submit to your will, your plan, your way, following Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, instead of being people of compromise, but also not caring more about our pigs than we do people. That's something we have to be really careful about, careful about Christians. Now, I have to say in defense of Christianity, um, you know who one of the greatest groups of people that are doing work with the homeless here in Oregon are Christian people. It's definitely not our government. Our government's not really helping at all. But I see the church reaching out to the homeless. I see Christians cleaning up these tent cities. And man, if you've seen you know, what happens, like they'll pull these tents up and rats, rat holes everywhere, rats run around and there's, there's just grossness everywhere. And these people go in there and lovingly cleaning up. Like you do have to say there's people that still care. There's an old poem and I'll finish kind of with this. Um, it's called Poem of the Gadarene. It says, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. You love men, we love swine. Oh, get thee hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good is that to us, thou have made it whole, since we have lost our swine? And so Christ sadly went and he wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine, but they wanted swine. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks, but if your gold or swine, the entrance blocks, 
He forces no man's hold. He will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. No cumbered chamber will the master share, but one swept bare by cleansing fire and then plentished, replentished fresh and fair. With meekness and humility and prayer, there he will come, yet coming, even there, he stands and waits and will no entrance win until the latch be lifted from within. I like that, that, that old poem about the gathering because it really does ask the question, Remember in Revelation three, when Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. You know, we always use that as a, you know, you're a non-Christian, so you need to open the door of your heart and accept Jesus. Well, that's true. But as it turns out, that verse is to the church. Jesus is talking to the church when he says, I stand at the door of people's hearts and I'm knocking. And if anybody will open up, I'll come in. See, the, the reason that's an important verse here is because the, Gader, the Gadarens or Gadarenes or the Gergesenes, they've got an opportunity to say, hey, Jesus is at our door. What are we gonna do? And all the other towns, Capernaum and you know, all the others around there, they all let Jesus in to some degree. But these guys said, get out. We don't want you here. And how do they get to that place? Well, they had made compromise after compromise where pretty soon they could care less about Jesus. They could care less about the man of the tombs and his healing and his recovery. They just cared about themselves and about their pigs. Man, God forbid we become callous like that. Are we ready to lift the latch of the door to Jesus? Even if it means cleaning out some of the things we shouldn't have, letting go of our swine, whatever that is for you, the stuff you care about that you probably shouldn't. Um, some of us need to let it go and let Jesus flood our lives. And I'll tell you, you let Jesus in, you'll be in good shape. Jesus is what you need. Jesus is the answer for every problem that you have. So get rid of the swine, forget about it. Don't do that, follow Jesus. It's a good reminder for me and it's a good reminder for you. And also if you're not a Christian, um, you too uh, need to be careful to accept and receive Jesus. Apart from Jesus, nobody can be saved. We're in our sin, we're headed for hell. But Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says if you accept him, the work that he did on the cross and believe what he said he would do, the Bible says you'll be saved and you can be a Christian and go to heaven. Man, don't miss that. Don't be like the Gadarenes who rejected Jesus. Let's pray. And so Lord, as we close out this service, I pray that you'd sharpen us, Lord, as people, that we would draw near to your son, Jesus, that we'd be worshipers of Jesus. Lord, forgive us where we've kept our little things that we think are important. Even the things that might prohibit our relationship or block our relationship with you. The, the swine, Lord, we don't wanna hang on to that stuff. So may we be just reminded today as a church to draw near, to be a part of your people and, and to plug in and to be known in the church and to have safety around uh, a multitude of counselors. Help us not to be full of compromise, making decisions that are just wrong step-by-step -step decisions. Lord, forgive us for that. I pray for a reset today, that you'd get us all a fresh start as we walk out of this building, Lord, knowing you do that, because you're the, the God of the second chance and you give us chance after chance. So we pray you just freshen up our walk, freshen up our lives as we walk away today, Lord. Bless these, your people. And for those that don't know you, may they accept you and believe, be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.